Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rogers, VP of Business Development at KeyTech. Each month, me and a KeyTecher are going to interview a MedTech leader and talk to them about the critical data-driven decisions they make in their programs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, episode 20. I'm your host, Andy Rogers, VP of Business Development here at KeyTech. Today, we have our guest, CEO of the company Brilliantly, Kristen Carbone. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're excited to tell your story today, and I'm kind of nervous. Sounds like you're a podcast pro, so uh, <laughs> you're, you're used to this now. Yeah, it's, it's been awesome. I, I love having the chance to tell my story, and I think every different interviewer um, allows me to tell it from a different perspective, so I'm really excited to chat with you today. Cool, yeah, and you're, you're our first women's health product uh, uh, feature on on the podcast too. So we're excited about that. Love it. Yeah. So let's get right into it. So your product is for use in warming females pre predominantly, right? Or, or could it be males potentially? It could be anybody. So can you describe to our audience of 3000 kind of followers on LinkedIn and, and our emails, just what your product is and how you came about, um, you know, uh, uncovering this, this need in this product? We make a product called Brilliantly Warm. It's a connected wearable device that um, warms you up at the push of a button. And right now, as you said, we are focused on women, but the technology itself is genderless. We just happen to make a form factor that fits into any bra and then is controlled by an app. So warming your core is just a really effective way to warm anyone. You can think of it as like an invisible puffy vest. But uh, if you if you want me to dive into the background, I'm happy to do that right from the get go. Yeah, and most definitely. I think it's worth um, describing kind of where this idea came from and your, kind of your inspiration that led to this first product, which we'll come back to. Okay, awesome. So I had a preventative mastectomy and reconstruction about 10 years ago, and that was because I lost my mom to metastatic breast cancer in her 40s and decided because of my hereditary risk that I wanted to have this risk-reducing procedure. I had no idea about sort of the physical outcomes around sensation that I was going to experience, and I feel cold all the time, which was an odd, really unexpected problem. So when you have breast implants with no tissue insulating them and keeping them at body temperature, they act like a heat sink. So they're doing what any material wants to do, which is equalize between the surfaces it's touching. So it's literally pulling heat from your core all the time. And I spent years thinking I was the only person who had that problem because no one had told me that I would feel cold and just honestly was trying to design something for myself. I was working in museums. Um, I used to be a curator and was cold all the time and stopped doing things outside with my kids that I loved and just decided I needed something that was not a jacket or a vest or tied to a garment that I could wear every day, no matter what I was doing. And because I'm not an engineer, made a real ugly <laughs> version of what is now brilliantly warm that did actually fit into any one of my bras, but was hooked up to a drill battery and uh, ended up talking to other people to find out if they needed it too. And that's sort of what launched the whole business. But it, in, in its essence, it was really just like I was a person who had a problem, tried to make it for myself and realized I couldn't and that it didn't necessarily make sense to hire somebody to help me unless other people needed it too. Got it. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great backstory. And a lot of our guests on the podcast have a very personal tie to their, the market need that they're seeing. And, and I, I love to see that. I mean, it's you, you, no barrier will get in the way. You know, I, I heard on one of your other podcasts, you know, 
pivots and turns as, as you're marching down to get this thing commercialized. So congrats on, on making that move and going for it. I think that says a lot about, um, about, about a lot of the founders that we, we talk with. Um, being an engineer, so this is going to be fun. You're not an engineer. I am. I promise I won't ask a lot of challenging questions. But, um, you know, I, I know that um, you said not wearing a jacket and not a garment, you know, something you could wear every day. I guess I'm just curious, is this, this is a, a pretty common procedure. Is it a very localized cool cooling feeling or are you just cold in general? Yeah, I love that question. And the answer for me is honestly both. Like I can put my hands on my chest and literally feel that they're cold to the touch. And when I first started trying to understand like the temperature difference between what I was experiencing and other women, I bought a laser surface temperature gun. And because I have such wonderful, kind friends, they would let me take the surface temperature of their chest. And I learned, like I, I did it to a hundred women and I can, I think pretty confidently say that breasts are between 91 and 94 degrees in a woman who has had no reconstructive or mastectomy experience. And then breastfeeding moms, their temperature was between 94 and 96. And I am almost like when I'm comfortable, like I'm comfortable right now. And if I went and grabbed that, I would probably be around 88, 89 degrees. And when I would like get out of the shower or actually be feeling cold and take the surface temperature of my chest. Um, sometimes I was in the high 60s. So if you imagine having something that's that cool against your chest all the time, your body is then working really hard to keep your core warm. So your fingers get cold and your toes get cold. And my nose, like I turn into Rudolph, I get like a bright red nose and ears. So because my core was cold, the rest of me would actually feel cold. Yeah. And it, and it you know, makes sense, the thermal model of just any normal person taking not a cold pack, but something like that, and putting that there, you're, you're going to cool down. Um, so I can I, I see the need, you know, for for your product. And so, um, just to talk a little bit more about the product. So um, you said there's an app and a I don't know how you would describe it a slider into a bra, I suppose that that is a heater. So just talk a little bit more about the makeup of the product and the user experience for our audience, please. Of course. So we call it. Um, we say that it like is an insert, so it slides into a bra, like as if your bra is a pocket. And because women are typically walking around in clothes that don't have pockets, which is a whole other thing we could talk about, lots of us have used our bra as a pocket before. In college, I was like, here are my keys and my chapstick and my 20 and my ID. So sliding something into your bra, the heater itself is only like about two millimeters thick. So it doesn't change the shape or style of the bra that you need to wear. So it's like a fabric circle heater. And then what we call our smart module, which is... Um, a plastic case that contains the battery, Bluetooth chip, and electronics um, to make it actually heat up and work. And um, we're working all the time on figuring out how to shrink that part. But for now, it's really like you wear it in your bra, depending on the size and shape of your body and your bra and what's comfortable if you've had surgery, where your incisions are. So it's, it's meant to be really malleable. And all you do is you slip it in when you're getting dressed. And then you turn it on with the app when you get to where you're going that you're cold. So that might be on your commute on the subway. It might be when you're walking your dog. It could be in the grocery store when you're watching your kids outside, if you're going skiing, if you're on an airplane. So the app simply allows you to turn the device on without sticking your hand in your shirt or asking, like excusing yourself to go to the bathroom. Right. Yeah. It's very important just not to interrupt your day. Um, so just uh, also questions yeah, how long is does the battery last? What what temperature are you heating your skin to? 
you know, those types of questions. So because I was originally designing for a community that typically has limited sensation in their chest, the safety and temperature part was really important because I'm someone who has worn those like hot hand glove warmers in my bra before and not been able to feel that I was actually getting burned. And when I first started doing the research to understand if other women had this problem, I was seeing cases of people who did DIY hacks to warm up that burned themselves so badly before they felt they were burning that they actually melted their implant and would have to have surgery to fix it. So the, the temperature part was really important. And we did a lot of research on what is the safe temperature to be on your skin for a duration of time, because even at a low temperature, sensitive skin can get burned having warming for a long period of time. So um, brilliantly warm actually only gets to 111 degrees. A typical like plug-in electric blanket or heating pad, some of them get to like 165. So you can really damage your skin and hurt yourself with those if you're not careful. Um, the app has three settings. So you can pick from essentially a high, medium, and low. The low setting lasts about seven and a half hours. The high setting lasts about four. The cool thing about with safety in mind and the temperature is that it goes through this cycle of active warming and inactive warming, meaning it warms up and then it will be off for 10 seconds and warm up again or 15 seconds or 20 seconds, depending on the cycle that you choose. And that also makes sure that the nerves you have, or if you have all of your nerves, continue to be stimulated by that warmth. But there are periods where there's not active warming, which makes it safer for your skin and also helps with battery life. Got it. So you sort of pulse modulate the the heating, almost with the user not knowing, to extend the battery life and you know keep keep the the consumer um, uh, comfortable. That's a, a a great summary of of the product, Kristen. And um, let's talk just a, for a second about the business because I love hearing the, the full story before we dive into you know what our audience wants to hear, which is really you know the decisions you had to make and what data you needed to collect. Uh, you know, to, to reach certain decisions. Um, so what, what does the business look like? So you're selling these products over the counter or is it, you know, describe as a consumer, is it a medical device and just how are you making money right now? Yeah. So it's a consumer product. We're, we're just a wearable tech product and there's lots of those on the market now, which is really different from when I first started talking to women in 2017. Um, the data now shows that like 80% of people are willing to wear wearable tech on their bodies, which was not the case when I started out. I felt pretty strongly from the get-go that we didn't, we really wanted to meet women where they're at. We didn't want to be a medical device. We didn't want them to have to go back to a doctor or to the hospital or to their treatment center. And this was, of course, all with the cancer community in mind. I wanted them to be, you know, when they're up in the middle of the night worried about something, am I the only person who has this issue that they could Google it and find it and get it themselves? Um, because the women who I spoke to early on in 2017, when I was really trying to understand, am I the only person who has this issue or are there others? The conversations that we had were sometimes with women who were three, five, 10 years out of surgery and treatment who were still encountering problems and weren't likely to go back to their doctor to figure those out. So um, we're not a medical device. We're direct to consumer. We are also available for sale on a few online marketplaces. Um, some of those are focused on the cancer community. Other those, of those are focused on like tech products for women, which is pretty cool. Um, and, you know, we're working all the time on figuring out some of the more B2C opportunities where there's other businesses or physicians also selling the product. And really 
the consumer medical plays in tandem with being direct to consumer, which we, we mostly find people because we have a really limited marketing budget. We're finding those people online through the community that we've built. Got it. And so why did you elect to go consumer first instead of medical? Um, you know, we, we are starting to talk to more women's health startup companies. We'll get, get to the market trends in a, in a moment. But why, why did you choose consumer? Well, as I said, I was a museum curator, so I'm not a business person. And for me, I was having these conversations with women and said, well, where do you find products? Where do you look for things? How did you figure that out? And immediately felt like, you know, I didn't want to just make a product. I wanted to be educational. I wanted to do events and have other services. We did all of these things in tandem with product development. Like uh, we have a blog and have a ton of content on that blog. We've done a number of events. We have a corrective exercise program. We have a portrait project. We have a meditation program. So for years, while we were doing the R&D and user testing on the product, I was also churning out content and doing collaborations and events. And so it just sort of happened that we had people who were waiting to buy the product. And because of COVID, and I don't know if we're going to get into the nightmare that is supply chain um, since the pandemic, but we only made a limited number of these to just test out in the marketplace. And because we had thousands in our community who sort of knew what we were up to, we didn't need to do B2B in the beginning, but I'm learning now as I become more of a business owner and understand how to scale and grow the company that those um, other opportunities are often bigger and faster and that the cost in time and in money of reaching each individual customer who becomes one customer is pretty difficult and that it makes sense to, to focus on some of the bigger opportunities as well. If you do or when you pivot into selling now a medical device, I assume that you're re you'll have, now you'll have reimbursement and the revenue uh, that you could generate per device sale is, is greater, right, than, than a consumer product. But I'm, I'm curious, like what if you were to go to um, a medical device, like what you would be claiming? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, first of all, right now we already accept HSA and FSA payments because the, the price point of a set of, of Brilliantly Warm is $180, which is high for a lot of people. Um, and we wanted to try to do what we could to bridge a gap. If we go through the medical device process, actually we've had so much incoming inquiry from physicians over the last like three or four months that I formed a medical advisory group so we can understand what is the market opportunity and what are the claims we could potentially make that would guide some trials that we would do ahead of going down that path. Because when we launched last summer, with my intention being in the breast cancer community, 25% of our orders were from outside of that market. And we have women who are breastfeeding moms who use the product just as one example. And for breastfeeding moms, if you are someone who is pumping, warming your breasts before pumping yields more milk. And we could do a study with the product and understand like, and I'm, I'm making this up, okay? So anyone listening, this is not like a, an actual claim, but it's someone who uses Brilliantly Warm ahead of pumping might get 20% more milk. And if we know that, then we can file some direct claims. We did just wrap up a study with 50 women in the breast cancer community to sort of understand a little bit more about um, how it impacts them, what it changes for them, also what their frustrations were with the product. What could we improve on? How could we make them use it more often? So 
we're still exploring what we would want our claims to be, but to reinforce those claims, we would be doing some further studies. That's pretty powerful if you can, you know, uh, validate some of those claims, particularly around breastfeeding and, and others. And that definitely opens up a whole other, I, I'm glad you uh, formed that advisory board, makes sense to to look at all the other applications um, out there. So, okay, we, we could talk for an hour, just, you know, back and forth about what, what you're doing. But I, I appreciate the, the overview, where the product came from, what the product is. I think it's lovely that you have more of an online community than just a customer buying your product. Uh, makes total sense that that model um, has worked in other, in other um, maybe not so much in my fitness apps, but in general, you know, you can create this online community and, um, you know, imp- increase compliance and, and, and things like that. So, all right. Again, our audience uh, is, is growing, particularly in women's health. So let's get into the speed to data uh, section. So um, you decide to develop this product, you know, like anybody can kind of take a heat, heating pad and hold it and say, okay, that's great. I, th- I think there's something here. Um, but early on, like what, what data were you looking for? Um, and, 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 and how did you go about getting that data to, to answer the question, should I, should I develop this product or not? Should I start this business or not? Yeah. It was a pretty disheartening Google search. I'll be honest. There were a few um, people who had written blog posts about feeling cold after their mastectomy and a couple of articles online. And my mom actually had been a medical um, research librarian. So I pinged a few of her friends to say, hey, could you dive into the research and see if you find anything, one, about like the number of women getting preventative mastectomies, which was very out of date. I think the last um, study on that where there's like really good data to point to is from 2015. at the time it was in 2012. So really trying to understand like how many women are there and how many of them have this problem and that just simply didn't exist. And then I thought, well, okay, well, what do, how do I figure out what's the next step? And so I joined the online breast cancer community. I joined Instagram. I joined a bunch of Facebook groups and I honestly interviewed hundreds of women and just said, Hey, what's your life like now that like, what were you expecting? What were you not expecting? Because I felt poorly about saying, hey, are you cold, Andy? Because I'm going to make something you can buy. So I really wanted to have a full conversation. Pretty quickly realized that about 75% of the women who I spoke to who had implant reconstruction had this problem. And I thought, okay, we, I know I want to do that. And then at each step, it was confirming, doing little incremental tests with users, um, doing Facebook polls, trying to create the data that I couldn't find. Um, and depending on, you know, we raised a tiny and I say tiny, but like a little over $100,000 early on to start making prototypes that we could test with people. And at each phase, when I would be able to report back to people and say, okay, thank you for investing in me. This is what we learned. Um, this is where we want to go next. I've been able to like get small checks and keep going. But because there's so much missing data, and I'm like literally trying to create it myself, and thankfully there are some organizations that um, are doing that for me now, but uh, it's, been, it's been difficult to figure out how do you prove the need if it's just anecdotal. Yeah, so you, you, you made it a science and there was enough of a um, confidence in the data that, uh, that, that you were willing to make the leap. So I don't know, two thirds of those, um, those people you surveyed sound like they, they definitely had a, had a need. So you, so you went, went forward and you, you mentioned this iterative, you know, early prototypes and testing. At what point, um, 
did you then, you know, start more of a formal product development process? Like what, what, what convinced you to say, all right, now we need to actually make the first real commercial product. Yeah. I talked to, um, a, a design firm that I'm coming to you from Providence, Rhode Island. And there's a firm here that had worked on a wearable that was actually a heated and cooling wearable, uh, different use case, um, different part of the body. But they had a whole bunch of data that they had collected in that process that really, when I went to talk to them about what I wanted to do that helped validate it, that, you know, we, we had information on like, regardless of mastectomy, that your chest is an area that has a lot of nerves that perceive temperature. They already understood the problem of, of personal temperature management. And just as a baseline, women's metabolism is about 30% slower on average than a man's. And I don't think it's purposeful, but a lot of workplaces are cold. And we all know that woman who's sitting in the office wrapped in a scarf with a heater under her desk and a mug of tea, and that you can't do your best work when you're uncomfortable. And so there was data that actually helped support that feeling warm and feeling comfortable allowed you to be more present. It allowed you to focus on your work better. You could, that it promotes generous behavior. There were all of these indications. So the burden of proof around the breast cancer case was something that I can't do all on my own, but there was actually clinical evidence that proved that warming was an important thing, especially for women. And I was like, okay, let's do it. You, you mentioned that you had investors. How did you even go about setting that up and, you know, structuring deals? And it sounds like you had multiple stages, you know, we'll, we'll come back to your, your path, but just, you know, for, for our audience, you know, how did you go about getting this sort of group of investors together? Um, I shamelessly network still to this day. I spend a, a significant portion of my time having intro calls, meeting people, going to events, um, and talking to anyone who will talk to me, especially early on. Like literally, I the day I decided I was going to start a business, I invited, I made a list actually of the things that I am not good at, that I thought I would need to be good at to start a business. And then a list of the people in my life who were good at those things and invited them over for a brainstorming session and dinner. And I said, I want to start this business and this is my idea. And will you help me? And so immediately forming an advisory group. And then also I emailed all of my contacts, like downloaded them all, made a beautiful email and said, hey, guess what? I quit my day job, which I did really prematurely. And if anybody out there is about to do it, I'm happy to talk to you before you uh, send in that letter of resignation. But and said, hey, I'm starting this business and here's why. And this is my goal. And right now I'm like accepting virtual high fives. I'm looking for people to help with these three things. And if you know people who are interested in investing in early stage companies, I would love an intro. And so it really was through networking. Um, some of the really early investors were um, like friends of friends, family friends, people who understood the problem, a physician who like knew of the problem. So I think it was like people who knew and believed in me and also understood the problem. Okay. And so you, you have a legal team that's sort of setting all that up for you and kind of just, you're looking at the bank and saying, all right, we want to get here. Let's go raise more money. And so are you in the sort of venture capital series A stage or kind of still pre and more like in the seed angel round? I'm in the seed stage. I did um, a rolling pre-seed round that um, ended up totaling at about 750K and I'm in the middle of raising my 1.5 million seed round right now. I would recommend anybody listening to this who is about to start, get a lawyer who you love, um, 
find someone who focuses on startups. So you are set up well from the get-go. I was not. You know, we made a lot of missteps and had to go back. It, it, the actual story is a lot muddier than it maybe looks in, in a podcast. But finding the right people to help you, an accountant, a lawyer, um, who can make sure that you're being compliant and who can form deals for you that are founder friendly. I appreciate that background. Um, so, you know, back to the product. You know, so Keytech's a product development company as well. So two, two specific questions. The first, did you have women doing the development work on this product for you? Uh, and, and the second is, um, you know, what did you learn about developing a wearable um, it, you know, in your first round that you're going to, you know, apply in, in the future iterations? So, yes, I did have a team that had women on it early on. Um, there was one guy who was working with this small group of women. And the first day we had a meeting in person to try to like, they were setting a whole bunch of things up to show me and how we were going to do tests. And there was a mannequin, like a, a torso mannequin. And the only man working on it had put the bra on backwards on the mannequin. It was a sports bra. <laughs> and and which was like really funny and sort of spoke to why I felt like it was really important to have women working on this product. My team now is primarily men, um, but my software developers are two young women. Developing a wearable device is not an easy thing to do. You know, it's not something you're typically wearing. So what have you learned now that you have a product that is a wearable on the market that um, you, you found insightful that maybe you'll, you'll take learnings to your next iteration of this wearable device? Yeah, absolutely. And we're about to launch the next iteration of this device um, while we're working on some future things as well. So I think doing small runs where you can, so you're not sitting on inventory. If you learn that your customers don't like something that you're like, all right, we learned something. We made a few, you get them out in the world. You have people use them. You ask for feedback. I think constantly engaging with your customers is really helpful and important. And um, that's not just through surveys. That's like actually sitting down and talking to them, asking the questions about like what's bad, what's ugly, what do they hate, and and being egoless in the pursuit of making a really good product. And also, you know, I talked a lot to the people who are my customers to understand everything from like the size of their bra, the size of their breast implants, what color bra were they wearing, what were the other things they were using um, that they were either DIY or had or had bought specifically for that purpose, what were the good and bad things about what, what could be called the competitors? You know, like for me, that can be like literally a sweater or a scarf, but what are the things about that that work and what don't work? So if you're putting it on your body, what's important to the person who's putting it on their body? And I learned really quickly that a lot of the things that were tied to a garment or came in limited sizing or that were meant to be on your wrist and then you couldn't type with it on or they got in the way or you already had an Apple Watch. There were all of these things and I was like, cool, we're gonna design around what we learn from people. But I think the best way to do that is talking to your users because you and I, Andy, could sit in a meeting and brainstorm something that we think is amazing that no one will ever buy, right? Like we could convince ourselves that we're gonna make a decision that's awesome. But unless you talk to the people who are going to use your product, you're really never going to know how to make it better. One area with wearable devices that are battery power, battery power that always comes up is recharging. So describe, you know, how often you have to recharge uh, these inserts and um, are your customers, you know, complying? I tend to charge mine overnight. Like I'll wear it during the day or like last night was Halloween and I wore it trick-or-treating and then I came home and plugged it in. They charge fully in an hour and a half. 
I can wear it all day sitting in my office and then plug it in while I'm making dinner if I'm going back out again and it's already ready to go. It's charged. It's a micro USB charger. We're working on a wireless version um, mostly so it can be waterproof because that's one of the use cases that's really important. Um, but the charging, um, I think other than that we needed to improve our indicator lights to really show when it was charging and when it was fully charged, um, we've had no issues with that. I've seen it and heard about it being really clunky for some products for sure. So now we're in our last uh, section of the, of the podcast, which is sort of questions from in, inside key tech and more broader, you know, about the market. So first question, you know, how did you, you mentioned you had a, a cohort of, of friends, but you know, how did you collect some very sensitive information, um, you know, from, from end users for, you know, it's a very private sort of thing they're dealing with. How did, how did you get around that? I think that it really helps because I was willing to share my story and people immediately knew that I was someone who wanted to help and that I'm not here to take advantage of anyone. I think if I lead by saying, hey, I'm, I'm a previvor, I was a caregiver, I lost my mother. When I, when I approached asking a sensitive question from a sensitive place where I was leading with my own vulnerability, people tended to really open up. I had conversations with people about everything from sensation to sexual health to identity to hereditary risk and talking to your children to the financial struggles they were facing and dating. Like we talked about everything. And I think um, if you sit down with another human one-on-one -on -one and you show up as someone who's willing to have a really open-ended, thoughtful conversation, most people will also open up back. So it was pretty amazing. And I've you know, now that we're a little bit further along, I did hire a group to do some of the user feedback because I think it is hard to tell the person who made the thing, you know, like if I was asking people to tell me my baby was ugly, right? And I think it was easier if I hired other people to, to do part of this user feedback for me. And I hired the most amazing, thoughtful, kind women, like the, the users of Brilliantly Warm, some of them who participated in that feedback campaign emailed me to thank me because they had such nice conversations with those women. So I think it's really about making sure that if you're going to be asking someone really intimate, personal conversations, that there's someone who is informed about what is the experience and who's going to ask really thoughtful and sensitive questions. And because we, these women ask such good questions, we learned that almost half of our users are putting it in their pants for menstrual cramps. And so we'll be designing a form factor that fits on an abdomen for that reason. You, you learn so much more when you can have a real genuine conversation than if you just send out a survey. Yeah. What insights have you gotten from your online community, which I think is fantastic. Most of the startup companies are, again, just driving for a device and maybe an app and, okay, maybe we'll, we'll make an online community if we, if we get somewhere. But I can imagine you're learning some things from, from that community as well. Is that, is that true? Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I really, I am a super collaborative person. I think it comes from coming up through the arts. And I didn't want to compete with someone who already existed. There's a lot of nonprofits in the space. There's a lot of small businesses who are um, solving different problems. And I mostly was surveying the community to say, hey, what are you looking for that you can't find? And in 2018, it was conversations about sex as, they, as it relates to cancer. And so that's what we had a lot of blog posts on, um, we had events about that. We had the virtual and in-person. We had people Zooming in from their infusion chair in the hospital. Like That's how desperate people were for some of this content. 
And so having conversations and asking, like, what are you looking for? What do you want to see? And sometimes it was only mildly related to the product itself, but it really, I'm trying to be a company and a product that warms you, that allows you to feel good so you can focus on what's important. Anything falls under that umbrella. So I've been pretty broad in terms of what I think we can talk about as a brand. Yeah. So just talking more about the women's health uh, industry, uh, really exciting. I was at the Women's Health Innovation Summit a couple of weeks ago in Boston. I think that's where you met my colleague, Kelly. Uh, felt the energy. It was it was great. I, I remarked to Kelly, I think when we were having dinner one night, that that there was the most clapping <laughs> at, a, at a conference that, that I'd ever experienced, you know? Um, so I, I think it's a, a great community and a growing community. There was a stat on one of the uh, podcast episodes you, you mentioned that something only like 4% of venture capital founded companies are female, or is it 4% of venture dollars go to female founded companies? One, one of those two stats. 4% of venture dollars goes to female founded companies. And that's actually a little high. It, 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 depending on what source you look at, sometimes it's around two. Um, if you're a founder over 40, it's even lower than that, which I am. And um, if you are a woman of color, it's like shockingly low, the percentage of capital that goes to you. Um, and I think to your point about clapping, the women who are at, were at that event, um, and it was a great event, but we show up for each other in, in a real way. A lot of the people in that room are um, amazing, brilliant women who were doing huge jobs that stopped what they were doing to start a company because they saw a need. So like huge pay cut, massive amount of time and effort and energy put into solving these problems that they know other women are facing. And everyone in that room knows that. I just did a demo day where it was all female founders in the tech space. And at the end of the demo day, which was virtual, the guy who was running it said, I've never had the founder who went first to stay on until the end. This is the first event ever where everyone has stayed the whole time. And we were like, of course we did. Like, I believe so much in that woman's business and in that woman, like I would never sign off in the middle. And I think that that's sort of the entire ethos of the women's health movement, which I'm going to call it a movement. I think we're really at a moment of significant tide change in women's health. And I'm so happy to be a part of that. Yeah. No. I, so what do you think are the the main opportunities for investors? Like we, there, there needs to be more investment in this market um, where do you think the opportunities are? I mean, I know you know your space very well, and I totally agree. These are these are um, you know needs that have existed for a long time, where there just haven't been entrepreneurs like you coming up with these devices, getting the getting the investing. So wh where are, where is the growth? I guess another way to ask the question in this market. Yeah, it's difficult, right? And I think the first Women's Health Innovation Summit I went to was pre-COVID. And there was a female founder who got up on stage and told her story. She was in the fertility space. And I remember having my mind blown by her story and trying to get funding back in 2012, 2013 for women's fertility issues. An investor who got up after her and said, you know, I feel compelled to address what we just heard. And what she said really stuck with me, which was, we want to invest in, like, this was a female investor, and I'm paraphrasing. So this woman said, we want to invest in female founders. But there have not, there's one missing data in the women's health space. We were left out of clinical studies and clinical trials, I want to say, until the 80s. You know, like there just isn't a wealth of information that backs up the problems that we experience as women every single day. So missing data is one. Two, there have not been enough female founders who've had successful exits, especially in women's health. So I can't say, oh, 
I'm doing this thing that this company did. I'm going to follow that business model exactly, but with this product, and this is the differentiator in my product, and this is how I'm going to get there because that woman paved the way for me to do it. So we are in the moment where all of these people were pioneers in this space. There isn't a path to follow. And so investors, um, which is a funny thing to say because investing in the startup is risky, but most investors are really risk averse. They want to genuinely understand the business model, the opportunity, the size of that market. And in a lot of cases, that data isn't there to support it. So we need a lot of people who are willing to hedge bets on that. Um, we're not going to quit. We're not going to stop. That these problems are real. That we have them, and that we're going to see it through. Yeah, well, I, I like your model of consumer first, consumer market first. That's definitely a lower bar. So it seems like um, if you, if you start thinking that way, how can you get on the market over the counter you, using HSA um, dollars to kind of purchase the products? That's like a, a quicker path to market. That's always the problem with investors. Is like a medical device is going to take three or four years and four to 15 million dollars to get a product on the market but for for women's health um at least some of the product not all many of them are interventional but for the wearables and things like that if you if there's just a lower bar to market so that's a a compelling um sort of investment story it's a shorter time to return or revenue rather um another question i have for you is um you know where, where are there incubators out there um that are focused on you know identifying these these women specific problems because they, they should be getting a lot of attention at these uh, conferences. Yeah. You know, I don't know if there is one that's specifically focused on women's health. Um, I know springboard has a good one, but the women who I know who've gone through that program are certainly not um, precede They're, they've proved they have traction. They've sort of proven the, the case for their businesses already. I think really early stage companies in women's health. I don't know that there's a bespoke incubator for, for that. Um, I agree there maybe should be. I think the amazing thing that happened during COVID was so many of these programs became virtual. I did not do any kind of program early on because it simply was not designed for me as a mom. Um, I can't move to a different city. There were just things that I like logistically could not swing and were exclusive and really meant for young, younger people. Um, And I think that the people who wanted to support women especially like mid-career who were like, you know what, I've had some experience. I've lived my life. I've learned these things. I know this this should exist um, and I need some help. So there are programs now that uh, are focused on female minority underrepresented founders, um, helping them capitalize. They, you know, there's some of them are very specific around marketing or around fundraising. But in terms of like really early stage, does this exist? Should this exist? That's focused on women's health. I'm not actually sure. Yeah, I mean, I think you know the movement requires focus, like anything else. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting thought you had about um, you know a lot of these women's health needs are like most healthcare needs are, are older. Um, you're, you're you get older and you get sick, and and these women, um, you know, are committed. They they are they're committed to their life, and they can't move around. So, yeah, definitely needs to um, to change, I guess, or 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 have more of a COVID like virtual incubator um, for the, for focusing on the, on, on identifying, I guess, and then, you know, spinning out these companies. So um, congrats on getting it as far as you have kind of on your own. So um, I appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's all I had on, <clears throat> on my end, Kristen, thank you so much for coming on uh, uh, MedTech Speed to Data. Um, congrats on the success and 
it's a great story. And, you know, it's not easy developing, you know, wearable devices that are, you know, battery power that need to be recharged that, that are, that can be at a price point that, um, you know, consumers are willing to, to spend on. So, um, I think you've, you've uncovered a, a clear need and, and exciting that it's exciting that you're expanding, uh, even beyond that application we talked about. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, uh, if you need more female founders, women in tech to be on the podcast, I'm happy to introduce you. Yeah. Now, one of our um, members of our advisory board, Tracy McNeil, trying to get her on, on the podcast. That, that might be next year, but um, I appreciate that. We'll definitely reach out um, and, and see who might be in your network. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Andy. All right. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a key tech podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks. Thanks.